Thank you for tuning in to GV Talks, a podcast where I speak to locals about what's going on in the community. All people, whether successful or struggling, make our community what it is. GV Talks highlights those making a difference. Tune in every Thursday for a new episode. The podcast is proudly sponsored by Origin Athletics, a local 24-7 gym dedicated to getting you fit and healthy. Mention that you heard about the club from the podcast and pay no joining fee. Thank you and enjoy the episode. Rachel, thank you for joining me on GV Talks. Oh, thank you for having me along. You are. Uh, you mentioned you're in Atuka yesterday. In Atuka, was it presenting or? Um, at a, at a oh, I've been actually in Bendigo. I was in Bendigo. Bendigo. It was yeah. actually via Zoom. That was last actually last week. Yeah. Oh, okay. All on um, the pandemic and pandemic fatigue. Yeah. And languishing and. Oh, it's just, I guess, the impact of being in this kind of shared trauma that we've all been through with COVID and on top of our usual lives and jobs. So, yeah, giving some professionals some, uh, some just some, I guess, some help and, and bouncing off some issues around, you know, validating that we're all pretty feeling pretty tired. You know, we've all kind of had some of that pandemic flux of kind of whiplash of in and out of lockdowns. And um, we're still sort of grieving, I guess, the loss of some freedom that we had and still dealing with some uncertainty going forward in terms of what's the new normal going to look like and um and just feeling a bit tired and i guess limping to the line yeah. <laughs> at the end of the year so it, it yeah. sounds like you're uh, describing me <laughs> how um how do you get the opportunity to present something like that well it's actually interesting that i've had a few people approach over the time um in the last 12 months actually about um you know i guess they've, they've just noticed that i work as a psychologist and um, they've noticed that I think that I've, I've done some work in the area of stress and coping with people. So, of course, I've never been through a p- pandemic myself. I wasn't around in 1918 um, when the Spanish flu was on. But I guess I've done quite a bit of work in that space with helping people through, um, you know, different stressful life events and um, dealing with uncertainty. So, yeah, so so I had been approached, I think, sort of via sort of social media, people had been following and, and notice that there might be an opportunity to sort of have me on board. So on I popped and it's mostly been, um, which is unfortunate, it hasn't been in, in the room in the room because it's mostly been delivered over Zoom. But we had one locally, for example, Family Care had contacted me this year and I did one last year for them. And we had two lots of sessions on pandemic fatigue and we had two lots of 100 booked in for each Zoom session. So basically one in the, in the afternoon, then one later that day. Um, for a range of different professionals, educational providers. Um, yeah, people just wanting, I guess, some tips on how can they, I guess, improve their self-care going forward, given yeah. the... Um, yeah. How awesome. Yeah. Before we get too deep into it, do you want to tell the locals who they're listening to? Certainly can. Yeah, so my name's Rachel Willis, or well, that's my, my name I work under, and I, I work as a clinical psychologist here in Shepparton in a private practice called Pure Empowerment Psychology. I'm actually the managing director. Um, we, uh, I, I kind of describe myself as a life juggler because I have quite a few different hats. Um, so I have the, the role as the managing director of Pure Empowerment Psychology. Um, I work in the office and I also work in our outdoor office, which is down at a farm location near Yaroa um, with horses and people. 
Um, I can talk a little bit more about that later if you'd like. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and then we also have a couple of other businesses here. So we have also a real estate agency um, and the other businesses, we also have a farm. So I call myself a life juggler because I, I have a few different hats that I wear. Um, but obviously today I'm you know, talking to you more about the hat of, hat of psychology. Um, and I work as I, um, as a, as a clinical psych, but I also work as like a, a supervisor to training, um, intern psychologists so that I can only see so many people, but if I can help them, you know, help train up other people, then they can go on to help more people. So I sort of see my, my, I guess my purpose is, is, you know, helping to reach as many people as possible, but not obviously directly by myself always. Yeah. 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 You don't know what you do and how it echoes. So what you mean, yeah. yeah? Yeah, yeah. How do you juggle all that stuff? Good question. I have to be incredibly organised. Um, so I have quite a, a strict schedule around, you know, the days that I'm in wearing my kind of on the business hat with the director hat for the practice and the days that I'm, I'm working in the clinic, you know, clinician role, um, the times that I'm working as a supervisor, the times, the days that I'm doing equine assisted psychotherapy at the farm, that's on a particular day of the week. Um, and then of course there's some, also some guest speaking roles I have been doing as well as I mentioned before so it's about being organised and just being mindful which hat you're wearing <laughs> and then obviously sometimes I'll throw on the real estate shirt and help out with inspections or um, you know auctions I've got my full real estate licence as well because my husband Rod Seach is actually a licensed yeah, real estate agent at Your Soul Real Estate yeah. Great. Yeah. How do you feel about having a full schedule? It's interesting. I, I like being busy. I'm, I'm kind of that, um, I need to be busy in some respect. I need to have a full, I don't say need, I, I like to have that. I thrive on having more things going on. Um, I have to be careful because I can bite off more than I can chew. So I'm constantly checking in on myself. Like every quarter I do a kind of self-care plan, which I do with my staff as well, just to check on how it's sitting. Um, I've had to get better at delegating as well because I was I'm very much pretty fiercely independent. So um, you know I'll look at a project and I think I can do all of that, or um, look in a role and I think I can do a lot of that. So I've had to get better at, at delegating and building team over time has helped with that. Yeah, so it is hard to delegate, especially mm. when you're how you describe like somebody who likes to take a lot of things on. I find they always just they want to do it themselves. Mm. It's those two things go hand in hand. Yeah. So how have you done that? Mm. How have you let yourself become the person who can delegate? Yeah. Well, I've actually had to just be, um, and sort of a strategy that we often use is, is think about, you know, there's a part of you that's kind of the wise mind, you know, the part that makes the reasonable decisions. And then there's intellectual mind and there's emotional mind. So emotional mind's kind of fear-based intellectual minds. Like you, can, you should be able to do this and should be able to do that. Not checking in on your energy levels. Whereas wise mind kind of goes, well, what would the average person be able to do? You know, would it be fair and reasonable? I expect them to do this, this and this, you know, in a given day. Um, I think, no way, no one else would take that on. You know, that's far too much. That might burn them out. So I guess I've allowed that part of me called the wise mind or the healthy adult to try and lead the process. And that's something I do with the clients I work with as well, is that healthy adult needs to be leader not you know the part of us that can be quite emotional or you know vulnerable or the part of us that can be quite intellectual because both of those spaces don't allow for really checking in I guess what's healthy um, in terms of what's reasonable limits to put on yourself and your workload yeah yeah you want to be at the edge of your capacity though Mm. 
I sort of think, I, Harley, I've got a bit of an interest in sports psychology. Um, I'll talk a little bit about that maybe later. But yeah, I always think about that inverted view of stress. So, you know, there's um, up one end of the curve, you've kind of got like, so down the bottom, sorry, of the axis, you've got like low stress on one end and high stress on the other. And then you've got performance, low and high. And for me, my optimal curve for performance is in my job and in life is about having more things so so more stress more things to do to a degree um, and then once I exceed that that's when my performance will drop off so it's called the inverted view of stress and performance and it's quite you know it's quite a good one um, that we talk to people that um, in the sports psychology kind of field um, that and not just sports psychology but any sort of performance area that that you need to kind of work out what your level of you know best function or optimal function looks like you know so for me that is doing more than less um but it's also the type of work i'm doing as well that it needs to be energy giving and vitality giving if it's not i need to say goodbye to that so yeah what do you mean by that energy giving well energy giving is meaningful work so that could look like different things for different people but if I if I thinking about taking something on and I feel a sense of vitality about that, um, for example, coming along to this interview, yeah, yeah, having me on. So if I feel like there's a sense of vitality that that's actually would bring me a sense of contentment and fulfillment, that's something that I would gen- and I and I can fit it in obviously in the schedule. Then I would take that on. If if it's something that I think that's more of a drain. Um, I would be really doing it for someone else more than you know myself in that respect. Then I would say no to no to it in that yeah. So, and I found that that's kind of worked. It works for me, and I encourage clients to live that life where you're pursuing your values, you know, um, congruent with you know that level of contentment, you know, and fulfillment in life. Because otherwise, it feels like life is hard. Things are hard. Um, so yeah. The old saying is, you know, around um, if you do a job that you love, you know, you never work, a, you know, a day in your life. And that's a lot to do with, you know, I think the contentment and the fulfillment, finding that and sticking at that. I think that's really important. Mm. It's great. I love mm. it. Um, I try and do where my interest sends me. Yeah. Which kind of feels similar to what you were saying just then. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it... The, we're kind of going off track here, but I'm, I want to get into it. Yeah. <laughs> um, if somebody isn't finding that in their work, mm-hmm. do you think that they need to change a job or just reevaluate what reevaluate what they're actually doing? Yeah. Not always just change job or change school or course or whatever it might be. It, I think you need to step back and then look at um, basically what do you want your life to stand for? And it sounds quite deep and meaningful, doesn't it? But a lot of people come in to see me and they say, I'm kind of lost or they may not even say they're lost but they just feel lost and they're just they're just basically putting one foot in front of the other so Mm -hmm. that to me is you know it's not content it's not fulfilling it's not rich it's just that they're ticking boxes each day and they're feeling a sense of being stuck so basically looking at your life and thinking well I can only spend time in one space at one time so I can either be at work I can be in my relationship I can be with my family I can be with my hobbies um, let's really look at you know where these areas of, of each of these areas of my life give me some sort of sense of vitality. So I sort of ask people to rate them, and I do this myself: is how important are all of these things to you in your life right now? 
and then how successful do you think you are in each of those areas because the bigger the I guess the bigger the gap between how important and how successful that's called a reality gap and that's that in that space of that reality gap is where generally our discontentment is um, because we're wanting to do let's say um, let's say there's a particular you know you want to spend more time doing hobbies um, or recreational pursuits and you I just don't have time for that but if you were doing that it would give you more joy um, there's a, there's a there's a big reality gap between how important it is to you and actually what you're doing, how you're showing up in that space. Yeah. So basically, in that gap, it's like, well, what are you going to do about that? You know, are you going to complain you don't have time to do that, or what are you going to do to make that happen? Because I notice on the other area of your life, maybe it's work. You know, you're spending a lot of time there, um, and it's going really well for you. But meanwhile, back over at the hobbies area, you know, you know you're feeling like you there's a bit of a, a discontentment. So yeah, so allowing people to explore, I guess their their sense of um, reality gaps in their you know their world because it can be different to that you know, um, and as you move through your life, different things mean different you know obviously have different values and importance. So you, your friends might be really important to you at a particular time in life, and they always are important. Um, however, as you're moving tracking through life, you know you notice the value alignments can change a little bit. Like mm. you, yeah, so. Yeah, so so I think that's that's been very very helpful to, as part of work life balance and work life harmony more than balance is to really check in on that discrepancy between what's you know what's really important and what how life actually is in that space of that reality gap and what are you going to do about that? In fact, it can be a reality slap because when you discover it, okay. I actually, why, why am I being this sort of rat on the treadmill and I keep doing the same thing and nothing changes if nothing changes. So uh, but we can, we, we're creatures of habit. We continue to do the same thing, even though we talk about, I want to be doing this and I want to be doing that in my life, but I don't have time <laughs> or we don't have whatever it might be. But the reality is we would make the time if we knew that it was important and then set some committed goals and actions towards that. Yeah. Yeah, of course. So, yeah my curiosity wants me to ask what would happen to the society if everyone just did what they wanted because mm. there are some jobs out there that nobody wants to do surely sure yeah like yeah it, it's it's that would be tough i reckon well yeah it's interesting you've said that because i've noticed a real shift since the pandemic that and during the pandemic is that people have really started to value, like look at their values and say, you know what, I don't, I don't want to go back into work from nine to five. You know, my employers allowed me to work at home because of COVID, but when the opportunities present to come back to work, I actually don't want to do that anymore because it's not meeting my needs. Like I, I valued having that time in the morning, maybe more, you know, time to sort of warm up into the day, exercise, spend time with family, etc. And I don't want to be doing that anymore. So this is where. I think a lot of people have been confronting or confronted by that and they're looking at their values. Of course, if you then say, well, I just want to live a life that's about entitlement and it's all about me, that's not going to work in terms yeah. of, yeah. So, um, but we do need to consider, you know, what does, a, what does a harmonious life look like for you? And that would be different for every person. And then how do I manage that with the realities of what life expects of us, I guess, in our different roles? Mm. yeah great mm. how did you personally get into psychology it's an interesting story it's a um well i find it interesting and i never knew i was going to be i 
wouldn't have even imagined I'd be a psychologist. Um, I, I, my story is this, is that I, I'm an identical twin and uh, yeah, so there's another one of me running around, but in Melbourne, <laughs> so I'm actually from Melbourne originally. Who's and the I'm, evil one? <laughs> the evil twin, yeah. Oh, of course, my, my sister Belinda. Um, and, you know, we're, being identical twins, you're involved in a lot of research and studies and my mum and dad at the time, they, they thought it would be great to be, you know, let's contribute to research, let's put these twins forward. So... Um, we were involved in lots of studies. So I was I literally from the ages of, I think it was around about three and a half, four, um, right through to early teenage years. Basically, we would have psychologists coming to the house, bringing out the little testing caravan. It was like a little, looks like a vintage caravan back in those days, because I'm, this is back in the late 70s to early 80s. I'm in my nearly late 40s. So um, anyway, and they would test us. I still remember sitting sitting there and I just remember a bit like your chest here, but we had the farm animals and we'd be sitting opposite each other with a petition in between us and we'd have to sort farm animals into little plastic fences. Um, and then they'd be, you know, have their clipboards out and they'd be assessing how we had done that. And, and a range of different, obviously they did some cognitive or IQ tests and a range of different things. And, and it went all the way through until we pulled the pin, you know, and said, oh, enough, you know, we don't want to be involved in this anymore. Mm. Um, and I was just really, I was just always so fascinated. And then usually the story is, you know, when you're at high school that you, there's the friends that, you, you know, come to you and talk to you and those sorts of things. So there was a bit of that as well. Um, I generally, at school, I generally kind of had a, you know, I had my, my great, peer group and then I would float amongst other groups as well and I'd, I'd always have this bit of a little bit of a bleeding heart for the for the person who was sitting outside the library um, by themselves reading a book every lunchtime you know these, these sorts of people that you would see and I, I now think that these people that maybe didn't quite fit maybe in to other peer groups probably did have maybe maybe they were on the autism spectrum maybe they were you know there was a range of different things but um yeah, so my interest grew and then I took psychology at um, in year 11. And yeah, I was just fascinated by it. I was just, this is just really so interesting. Um, never did I know though that it was going to be such a big commitment in terms of study. At that point in time, I did, was taking the subject out of interest and I thought, this is, you know, this is really interesting. But I, by the time I got to year 12, I still remember sitting with um, the careers counsellor at the time and in those days, they'd pretty much just have the job guide and they'd flip it open. And I still remember because this particular careers uh, counsellor or teacher, I think she was just, she was in this job as a bit of an optional kind of extra to her teaching load, I would say. So basically, she flipped open the job guide and she just sort of randomly selected and said, oh, ah, so what about a myotherapist? What about that? And I'm like, what's a myotherapist? I've got no idea. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and then she was saying, oh, what about, you know, something in the therapy field and, you know, these different things? Because I really didn't have much idea. I think I was thinking I'd maybe do something in teaching or so I had an interest in sport. I've been fairly sporty throughout my life. So I had an interest in sport um, and at VUT. And I was just, I was pretty, I was a little bit confused. Anyway, I, I saw behavioural science at La Trobe and I thought, yeah, that looks good. Um, looks interesting and and it was amongst other things and anyway I ended up getting into that so um, at La Trobe in Bandura in, in Melbourne and yeah and at that point in time I still really wasn't sure I, I did the undergraduate which is three years um, starting point and then you get to it 
needing to do a fourth year, accredited fourth year. So you either get invited into honours. Well, the, the first three years of uni was pretty social and it was great, you know, <laughs> involved in lots of different things. But um, And that's part of uni life. But anyway, um, so then by the fourth year, I was fortunate enough to get, I sort of knuckled down more so in the third year. And I got in, accepted into the honours at the at La Trobe Bundura, which was excellent. So then it was more research there. And I was like, oh, I don't really want to be a researcher. Um, there's so, so much stats and rats you can take when you're studying psychology. There's a lot of statistics. There's a lot of, you know, theories. And, you, and it's, it's all very helpful. At the time, you question, though, how is this going to help? I just want to work with people. And it's not until you get to the fourth year you start to sort of do a little bit more of that practical work. Um, I also, at that point in time, thought, if I'm going to work as a psychologist, I better... I better find out if I actually can do this. Like, I know I can read a textbook and I know I can sit an exam. So then I went and I did some voluntary work because I thought I really need to find this out if I if I want to pursue this further. Because I'm not, at this point in time, I'm, you know, third year, then into the fourth year, you're not a psychologist or a trainee or provisional at that point. So then I just ventured into doing kids' helpline um, and crisis line. So they're, you know, after hours... Um, mostly on after hours and yeah teaming up with a couple of other uni students and we'd be on rostered on all around the clock um, which was interesting <laughs> and it was great I mean we were after hours for, for parents of missing children line and oh, you'd hear so many um, very confronting stories and um, you know people ringing in need and then we'd have people pranking us of course because they're testing out the service particularly on kids helpline mm. um, and I also did a bit of uh, helping out with Berry Street and um, not fostering, but also just helping out with sort of the Big Sisters and Big Brothers um, program. And that was another good way to sort of learn. And then I thought, you know, I'm really enjoying this. So if I pass everything, which, you know, it's looking okay, hopefully I can find a job somewhere that's in a, a broad field of psychology of some description. And hopefully I could find an internship, you know, that would be even better because... Um, Back then, you know, it's cutthroat to get into psychology courses, particularly if you're going up higher postgraduate. So um, after you, you know, your third and then fourth year. So I then, um, yeah, found this job in disability services. In it was out in Thomastown in Melbourne. So it was working at an old police station. It was the old cop shop in High Street, actually, in Thomastown. And it was actually very similar demographics to Shepparton, actually, um, in terms of cultural backgrounds. Yeah, that sort of area. So I, um, yeah, I enjoyed that work. It was helping people sort of find work, vocational rehabilitation sort of service who have a multitude of different disabilities from physical, so not just all psychiatric or mental health related issues, but yeah, physical, people who are hearing impaired, all sorts of things. So yeah, so I got... I got had that got that job lined it up got an, a supervisor and started my internship which is a bit like an apprenticeship I guess and back then it was a four plus two pathway which what that means is you do four years at uni two years on the job yeah okay and I was just so I was just so fortunate that job I really enjoyed that job I, um, I had an awesome supervisor and then 12 months into that um, I was offered where my supervisor was working at that time to join the team, well, there was a job that came up and he said, Rachel, I think you should really apply for this. Um, so I applied and I, I was successful in getting a job and it was um, the National Employment and Psychological Services Centre in, in Northcote. 
in Melbourne. And they had a few branches within Australia. So one up in Brisbane was their head office, and but my work was in Melbourne. And that involved doing all sorts of things. Um, we helped people not just get work with psychiatric disability, but we also uh, went into uh, services in the city. So we went into Department of Veteran Affairs and um, the Bureau of Meteorology. And we used to do a lot of um, training with the staff on mental health, kind of like first aid. Yeah. And um, yeah, and just staff support. You'd kind of walk through the the hallways and and find yourself a cuppa and sit in a room, and people would just come and have a chat if they needed um, that kind of stuff. So yeah, so there you go. So and then I finished my internship, and I had my official. Then I had my provisional P plates off because you're a provisional psychologist first, um, and then once you finish your your placement, if you like, plus your supervised practice and all the other tasks you need to do with it, then you get your full registration. Yeah. yeah. So how long was that part of the journey? Six years? Six years. So the four plus two. Yeah. So they're actually, though, retiring that pathway. So when I went through, because I've been a psychologist now for 21 years, so they were going to retire that pathway back in the year 2000. Yeah. So I had to work quick, smart to get it done. Here we are in 2021. And it's being retired in 2025. <laughs> okay. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Psychology is one of the most popular courses mm. these days. Mm. Um, and you said that you help people through their um, apprenticeship. or, or yeah. yeah, your internship. Uh, internship, yeah. sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do you find, like, a lot of people drop out of that course? Yeah, it's actually the first year of the, the undergraduate um, because people are expecting so this is the first year of the third three yeah. years before you do your fourth year people are ex- actually expecting that you'll work with clients and you don't it's far from the truth you know you're doing lots of research based theory you know as i said statistics and as we say stats and rats kind of stuff um and people are just really eager to start working with people but you have to understand the fundamentals of human behavior and the theories and you know and and the range of different mental health not just mental mental illness but the continuum of mental health from you know what health looks like and what illness looks like and psychopathology looks like um and then obviously the different lifespan stages and how that what that looks like across from infant mental health right across to older adult aged mental health so um, and then all the different types of psychology like you know Mm. there's so it's so overwhelming because you think well what do I want to be if I'm a psychologist because I'm trained as kind of a generalist and then you're not really we're not really allowed to use the word specialist because we're not a medical doctor we don't have a medical degree like like a doctor or a psychiatrist for example but you know your special interest might be sport or your special interest might be clinical psychology or organizational psychology or child you know educational development psychology so yeah what um what psychology do you unofficially specialize in? <laughs> unofficially, <laughs> unofficially. Okay, yeah. So I'm I'm well, I'm branded branded as a clinical psych. So my background is so I'm trained as a clinical psychologist, and so I was a general. Obviously, after my pathway, I became general psychologist, and then I went off and embarked, and I worked for a while because I was like, I want to get into the real world, <laughs> um, and then I did. I then did a master's in clinical psychology. So. Clinical psychology, all that pretty much means is that we're trained across working usually with people across the lifespan. Um, Generally, you'll see a clinical psychologist in more of a clinical setting like a private practice, a hospital, 
yeah but they can be found anywhere mm-hmm. okay and generally we're trained quite rigorously in assessing and diagnosing people um, so we work fairly closely along psychiatrists um, as well but obviously we don't have prescription privileges so we can't prescribe in Australia yeah. in America you can in America you can but I th- not yeah, in I thought you were I thought you were a doctor if you're a psychologist yeah so I know you don't get the doctorate so here's my um, saying I was a twin so my twin sister she went and did vet science right and she gets a doctorate title after which is fine but the, the <laughs> no. pathway I mean I've done 10 years I'm not complaining but I mean if it's 8 years to be um, to then find a special interest area you still don't get your doctorate until you've completed you have to go and do a doctorate okay so some some professions in health you'll get a just naturally get the doctor title by just completing what you know what's required in, in that 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 training they do initially not in psychology and that's why it takes a long time to become registered and then it, there's waiting lists for psychologists because trying to actually um, train psychologists for them to get into courses and be trained and then graduate like it's such a long process yeah you would know the medications that people need to be prescribed for certain mental yeah. health illnesses yeah. mm. so you just refer that on really so really yeah same. Yeah, we refer them yeah. on. And I mean, most of the referrals we receive anyway, Harley, are from GPs. So you don't need a, a referral to see a psychologist. So that's a, a big myth. You can just ring or you can email and you can see a psychologist. But if you want to want to get a Medicare rebate, you want to go on a mental health plan, the doctor is the gatekeeper. So they would go to the doctor first. And most people find themselves in a GP room first before they see a psychologist talking about you know, I can't sleep or I'm feeling whatever it might be. Uh, and then the GP will kind of go, well, have we ruled everything out? Like, if, is your iron okay? Or um, are there other biological factors? And if that, that all comes back okay, they're like, well, you're still feeling tired. You're still having a lack of energy or feeling a bit of sense of, you know, discontentment. Maybe go and maybe there's some depression or maybe some anxiety or whatever it might be. So, um yeah, so then that's where we the the referral is facilitated. Um, yeah. Yeah. What percentage of Australians have mental health problems? Mm, it's a good good question. So, yeah, so mental health, um, and I, I don't necessarily like the word mental health, you know, or mental illness. It's, it's a brain health, isn't it? You know, when you think about, it. but because um, it's still a bit of a stigma, and we're trying hard to to change that. But um, what percentage? So you know, roughly it was one in five. Yeah. Roughly. In saying that, though, the interesting statistics around um, mental health issues, I guess in pe- we break it down to life to lifespan. Children and adolescents are really um, featuring as having more mental health-related issues because of this whole pandemic um, than we've ever seen before. Um, like happy-go-lucky kids really struggling. Um, and, and some people that have had a history of anxiety, et cetera, prior to the pandemic can go, oh, actually, I can tolerate uncertainty okay because I've been dealing with it for years before the you know, the pandemic. That's what anxiety is, yeah? Mm-hmm. Um, so the percentages, yeah, usually it'd be less than, like, sorry, it'd be more than one in five now. Um, I'm not ex- exactly sure how many. Um, but different mental health issues affect different people and lifespans. Like some females are affected, for example, more by depression or anxiety than males, for example. 
Um, I know, unfortunately, suicide rates. I know that interesting stats about those. Twenty twenty suicide rates it was one um, person dies by suicide in Australia. If uh, sorry, nine in Australia, nine point one die a day in Australia um, by suicide. Mm. Now there'd been a slight decrease in that last year, which was interesting, um, given that we're in a pandemic. Um, we don't know what the census and the stats will say. Obviously, twenty twenty one, but. 2022 will obviously be interesting to see what that says but we've seen definitely seen an increase in um, mental health presentations but not necessarily you know which is good um, ending up in death by suicide yeah but it's still too high you know um, nine 9.1 people a day in Australia dying by suicide is, is still too high mostly men is higher um, than females mm. do you think you know the answer to the problem Ah, yeah, it's a good question. Um, the answer, I think, it's it's not just about psychology, of yeah. course. Um, my yeah, I actually think that there's a there's a like I was talking about before with lifestyle and people choosing value directed you know living and reality gaps and I think lifestyle has an incredible impact on people's mental well being, mm-hmm. and if if people were able to look at their habits of sleep like exercise routines I think that says a lot it says a lot um because that just puts so much in people's coping bucket to offset the stresses in life you know we're always going to have stresses coming along but the coping bucket needs to offset that okay we've also seen people's temperament and personalities become a little bit changeable so you can be you're either more kind of wired to be more of an anxious warrior type all that kind of, they say, like an awkward flower, quite sensitive and, you know, warrior. Mm-hmm. Or you, you're going to be more what's called like a dandelion, kind of flat weed, you know, just duck, you know, water off a duck's back kind of personality. And it appears over time that we're probably having more people that are a little bit more that awkward flower, yeah. And that doesn't mean they're weak or any of those things. What it means is that their sensitivity for distress is a lot narrower. So basically they don't tolerate you know, waiting or tolerating, you know, um, missing out on things. So this, this sense of distress tolerance has actually reduced over time and that has a big impact. Um, uh, that people, you know, it's a bit of a click and go generation. People get this and they, they want this now and they feel entitled to it. Mm. They, why can't I have that? So if you ask me, it's a little bit about that. It's about their temperament and their distress tolerance has reduced over time. But their sense of entitlement might have increased in some situations. The other thing is the trap, the happiness trap, which is a term that's used by um, Dr. Russ Harris, who's an ACT, Acceptance Commitment Therapy, sort of um, G, originally a GP, but then went off more into the therapy. So the happiness trap is that, you know, people often say if they're coming in, the goal for treatment, so we ask about goals and work on those, I just want to be happy. That's an impossible goal, you know. Because happiness is only one human emotion, mm. okay? And you know, if you look at the continuum of mental well-being, we're going to slide up and down it. We're going to be, you know, in some stages we're going to be really struggling and, and or just, you know, head above water. And other stages we're going to be feeling like we're really thriving. But to sort of say, I want to just be happy or thrive all the time is an impossible goal. So the happiness trap is set up paradoxical by saying, I just want to be happy. Now my life's not like that. So, again, that reality gap. But, okay, what if we could just tolerate, you know, grief? What if we could tolerate uncertainty better? 
what if we could appreciate what we have, have and that's what the pandemic's taught a lot of people is appreciating what we have, you know, in our lives now versus what we want, gratitude. What if we could be more compassionate about mm. things, you know? So um, I think there's, it's a big, yeah, it's, it's, it's a big area. You know, mental well-being is, <clears throat> it's, there's so many variables there that impact on, on it. And it's, it's like, you know, servicing your car. It needs constant maintenance. Yeah. Yeah. I love the message and I love everything you just said. But I find some people don't want to help themselves. Correct. I see, I see it at the gym. Like, <clears> if, <throat> like, obviously, if you start moving your body, you're going to feel better yeah. in yourself. They don't want to do that. I'm not asking them to do anything <clears throat> hard. Yeah. Just, just come in for a walk if you want. Yeah. And, and you know, it's like if having a gym membership, do you actually use it? So I go to see a therapist. Do you actually come along? Do you see the therapist? Oh, I'm seeing the therapist that, though, you know. So yeah. I use I, – it's interesting you say that because I use the analogy of going to a gym in my work with clients. I'll say generally we kind of see three types of people come through our door, sort of three categories. We see the people that are willing and able. So they're willing. They're at a point where they're really ready to take action. And the able part is that they're actually able to sit with the stuff that comes up because therapy is not easy work. It is, you know, it requires, you know, um, sitting with unpleasant feelings, talking about things that that may be triggering, okay? And, And obviously our job is to cause no harm and to help people through that and make sure they reset before they leave. But the reality is we're not doing friends therapy, okay? We're offering a dynamic approach whether it's cognitive behavioral therapy or act acceptance commitment therapy we're trying to give people an outcome okay yeah um so the people that come in that are willing and able they are going to usually find that they'll you know we put do between session tasks probably like yourself you know do some training in between and i say if you if you were just coming in to do your fitness assessment for example and you didn't do any training or if you just went to the gym every time and left the treadmill on a one out of ten and then we come to do the fitness assessment, you'd feel comfortable when you're training, but when you come back to, to actually do the assessment, have you made any progress? Yeah. Yeah, so we've got these people that are in that willing and able, then we've got the people that are willing and unable. So they're coming in, but they're not quite ready. That They don't want to sweat on that treadmill. <laughs> you know, they don't want to, yeah? yeah? But they're there. They've got the gear, you know, they're coming in. They read the things you might give them between sessions, but they're not quite there to kind of take it on. And, but they're still there, you know, a little bit more motivated. And then we've got the people that are unwilling and unmotivated. So they're the people that, that are referred sometimes by, maybe it's by a meaningful partner or a GP or someone who thinks it'll be a good idea. They really need to get fit, emotionally fit, if you like. And they just, they just don't want, they just don't want to, you know. So yeah. they're just disengaged. And, and, and we're pretty quick to pick that up in, in a kind and compassionate way. To say like you know you're coming in you're spending money on on this service it may is it the right time to invest in this for you um when you're in because maybe your mum wants to you to be here or your wife or your husband or whoever it might be it's okay you're not mandated to come in to see us we're a, we're a voluntary service you know yeah. and you're paying to come in so we want to see some outcomes yeah even that person though would get something out of the session if they mm. even if they didn't want to be there yeah 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 I, i've got um one client who comes to the gym and he's forced by his parents he's a young kid and our sessions are fine and he enjoys some of them but some of them are grueling like, like they're a yeah. bit of a task for him yeah um but even though he doesn't want to be there those days he still gets something mm-hmm. i still get him moving yeah and he often feels better afterwards yeah. mm-hmm. 
Um, mm. Yeah, it, it definitely. The, I mean, it's planting the seed. Yeah. And so if the person in your room or in your gym is not quite ready, I work with the part, I say to them, so you're here. Like, did anyone pay you to come in? Because you're actually here. And they'll be you know, a bit of a chuckle. It's like, oh, yeah, mum. Did mum or dad drag you in here? Because you're actually here. So yeah. well done. How much have I got to work with? So I really want to know, you know, if 90% of you doesn't want to be with a psychologist in this space and 10% does, then let's work with the 10%. What's that 10% about? You know, and this is called motivational interviewing. You know, it's about helping roll with the resistance, you know. Um, but at the end of the day, my job's not to debate with them, to say, you need to be coming in. I'll say, you know, this is what we can offer. This is what requires in between sessions to do. Um, if it's not suitable to meet in the office, come down the paddock and work with me on the farm because that approach with horses, you know, if, if this is confronting sitting, sitting opposite, come and we'll, we'll come to the farm and we won't sit opposite. We'll be looking with the horses and working in that space and you can fake it with a therapist but you can't fake it with a horse. The horse will pick you up and it will mirror back to you what's going on for you. So if you're having a, you know, a time where you're feeling quite shut down, and you're trying to approach that horse, that horse won't give you anything, it will shut down, okay? If you're feeling anxious, that horse will get a bit flighty perhaps. If you're feeling, you know, um, you've got slow movement in yourself, that horse will sl move slower. So, um, you know, if you've got hyperactivity, you have an issue like ADHD and there's lots of energy, there's gonna be lots of energy with the horse, yeah. So the horse will is a co-regulator, you know, it picks up your heartbeat from 10 meters away it reflects back to all of us what's going on. And when you say, what's wrong with that horse? I say, what's going on for you today? Because that horse is picking up. It's picking up on what's going on for you. Um, yeah. Is this something you've discovered or something you've researched? I've actually, uh, I, have a, I do have an interest in horses, um, but in using them in, psych, in a psychology space, I have done some further training as an I'm accredited um, equine assisted psychotherapist. So. I trained with people from America when they came out, when, when you could come go to workshops, <laughs> remember those days, um, and they come out to Australia once every 12 months, and it's Igala, which is, Igala is, um, they're based in Ohio, and basically you're trained to be, you're a mental health professional, and usually you have an equine person there too. I have a background with horses, so I can be both, but usually we try to have both in, if we're doing those model, that model, um, you know, to the protocol. Um, I, I always wanted to be able to somehow interweave animals into the work I do because I do, I like my dogs as well. <laughs> and I have a visiting therapy dog, but I, I find animals just offer another dimension. Um, and you get, you know, you can spend one hour in the therapy room with a person. You spend one hour in the paddock with the, per, you know, the person and the four-legged therapist. And we found like one hour with them is nearly equivalent to, to three hours in the office. Like there's just so much that comes out of that session um, for all sorts of reasons. Cause the horses are, they're non-judgmental. As I said, they, they are sponges and mirrors. So they reflect stuff back. They co-regulate people. People start developing stories about the horses. They say, that one reminds me of my dad. Yeah. Or that one's like, you know, um, my teacher at school who, you know, blah, 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 whatever they might say, you know, it, it becomes a story. And, and even the whole space you work in becomes a metaphor for their life. Like um, 
people have issues with boundaries and setting boundaries around their self-care. They look at the fences and there's issues with, you know, some of fences and boundaries and different spaces they can't walk through. And so it's all of that in that space. It's just there's so many elements to it. So, yeah. Yeah, being in an environment that they're not used to mm. would, um, would bring um, like some of their unconscious thoughts out of them. Correct. Like that's what it sounds like you're saying with the yeah. fe- the fences and stuff like that. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah, but when you when you're in the room, you don't see the walls as boundaries anymore because you spend so much time in these rooms. Exactly, and eighty percent is unconscious, twenty percent is conscious. So, in that space, you've got you're tapping into some of the unconscious, uh, unconsciously <laughs> unconscious, and um, basically you're also in what's called experiential. So, you know, if you're learning to drive a car, if I just said, here's the book. This is how you drive a car. Would you know how to drive a car? It's like, well, I could read the manual. Okay, get in and, and drive. Like, let's learn how to use, a, for example, learning how to drive a manual is, is quite complex to understand. So we don't just read. We also have to experience something to really understand it. When you're in a room with a person, we can do some experiential things in the office where we ask people to, you know, maybe do a, a relaxation exercise or a mindfulness-based or I might do chair work where they – speaking to different parts of themselves like I was talking about wise mind and the vulnerable child and what would the healthy adult say and all those sorts of things but when they're in the paddock with the horses you, you it's completely sensory it's completely experiential you know and in that space that's where change occurs um, because you're tapping into mind and body on a completely different level to what you do in, in an office space so yeah there's so many positives about it um, it's not for everyone because some people, you know, have allergies to horses. Um, if they have a fear of horses, that's not an issue. We can work with that. We have small little ones and bigger ones and we just do a graded exposure to different, you know, horses or we just spend time observing them before we go in with them. Um, yeah, so it's it's that's a, it's a really good space, really good space. And it's a great space for me because I, I enjoy being, out, you know, outside. Like who yeah. wouldn't? I mean, offshore in 40-degree heat or... Oh, it's raining. Well, we, we do. We have a little shed there. It's the old shearing shed we've converted into a waiting room. So we can sit in that if we need. But yeah, it's really nice being, for all of us, being outside. Yeah. Is it a popular service? It is. It's actually getting a little bit more. A lot of people don't understand much about equine assisted therapy or psychotherapy. Um, they think it's about going to hug a horse or they think it's about um, riding. We don't do any riding, I need to say that. It's all based on the ground together. Yeah. Horses are free to move and we've got bits of equipment that we say, if you want to use this to, to lead the horse. We actually don't use any horsemanship um, terms. We just, it's all what we call um, based on our, our um, clean language and that doesn't mean we don't swear. <laughs> what it means is clean language is that we don't want to bias the client's perception or the person's perception of the space. So if they say that horse there, what is that horse a male or a female? All right, Because if they don't know horses, they, you know, the terms are gelding and, and mare. I don't use those terms, so I just pretend I don't know anything about horses. It's a client's story. So I'll say, what would you like them to be? I want that one to be a female. Okay, it's a female. And they'll say, Rachel, what's that horse's name? And of course, they all have names. We actually don't tell them the horse's name. And it's not, no, we say this right from the start. Because again, it's it's biasing that experience. So if I said, oh, this one here is Harry. And if Harry was someone in their life that they've had some, maybe some negative, you know, issues with, all of a sudden they don't want to work with that horse because its name is Harry. Okay. 
So we allow them to name the horses um, or if they're names of you know people or if they're even characters or if they're, I've had Harry Potter characters, I've had, you name it, I've had even people working you know with addictions, like for example, trying to quit smoking. And they'll say, that one's chemical addiction, that one's psychological, we've talked about these terms, but they've called them different types of addiction and social addiction. The horses have been called different things. And the horses that approach them tend to be sometimes the ones that they're having the most difficulty with. You know, I'm having more problems with the physical side of that addiction than the social part. And the physical horse is closer to me. You know, it's quite, it's quite fascinating. So, yeah, so a very clean language, very unbiased space, client yeah. story. Mm. So what I'm imagining is um, I come and see you and I do one of these sessions, mm-hmm. um, whether it be um, in the practice or with the horses, and you sit back and maybe ask some questions and you observe mm-hmm. and then you give me some outcomes. Mm. So like you tell me, yeah. like, can you give me like some specific outcomes? Like yeah. what, what, like what sort of sure. things would you say to me if yeah. I was dealing with anxiety? Yeah, sure, sure. So firstly, what we would do is we would have the first session anyway. We generally, if you're coming, it doesn't matter if it's coming to the office or down to the paddock, but we normally have you at the office for the first appointment. And we talk about like, what are the, the, there's the referral, you know, the doctor said you've been referred for anxiety. Let's say, let's explore it a bit further. Is it actually anxiety? Is there something else going on? What type of anxiety might it be? So is it generalized anxiety where you just worry about lots of stuff? Is it more social phobia? Is it more OCD? You know, so just qualify that a bit further mm-hmm. and then collaboratively like, you know, what would the outcome look like? What would we like it to look like? What would If you were functioning better in yourself, what would you be doing more of, less of, and getting rid of? Okay. Writing those goals down and then looking at, okay, um, let's then put some sort of plan in place. So in the office, if you're doing cognitive behavioural therapy, we usually start working on behaviours first. Okay, so let's look at some particular behaviours. So with anxiety, avoidance is a, is a key behaviour that keeps the problem going. The more you avoid, the more you avoid, yeah. Like for me to show you the anxiety, I need to have the stimulus mm-hmm. for that. Like, mm-hmm. How do you see that if we're in the... Yeah. In the, like... um, In the room? In the room, sorry, yeah. Yeah. So when you say you need to see the stimulus, so we, we'd sort of qualify what is the trigger for your anxiety. If you're aware, like is it standing in front of, you know, people and, and giving a talk... Or for some people, like with anxiety, it's if social anxiety, they they really worry in that first part before they go out. Like they they love going out. <laughs> There's the anticipatory anxiety where they're really like, you know building it up as to you know what might happen and then there's the during phase and then there's the after yeah Yeah. so anticipatory anxiety so i'd really want to know what stage of which which point which phase of anxiety is most debilitating if you like and then i'd kind of case formulate so okay so the trigger is you know you're waiting to go out and you're thinking all these things that could happen might happen yeah what ifing negative what ifing and then um, and they're usually negative, obviously, outcomes to that. Um, and then what do you then do? So then I, you know, how do you cope with that? Okay, so look at their coping style, what they're doing, and then what the outcome of that is. And then I do a case formulation and I kind of go, okay, these are your issues you've come in to, you know, get some help with. This is your history. These are the kind of the genetic factors or the predisposing factors. These are the perpetuating factors. These are the, the perpetuating boxes, the most important. This is, this is what makes the problem continue. It feeds it, it puts fire, you know, mm. fuel on the fire. 
So if we're going to then develop a treatment plan, we need to target what keeps this problem going, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's where the goals, and we develop a hypothesis and that's when the, where the goals to treatment. So then when we're going into the paddock or into the room, we're making sure we're addressing those, going through that, that treatment plan according to those goals and then measuring if there is a difference. So for someone who spends a lot of time with anticipatory anxiety, we, I might be delegating them worry time. They're like, what? You want me to worry more? I said, yeah, paradoxical. If you worry more, you'll worry less. You know, So... Um, but I want you to, when you're in that anticipatory stage, I want you to keep, keep a bit of a log for what's going on. You know, what are you thinking? How are you feeling? What's your behaviour? And then bring it back into me and let's have a little look at what's going on. Because I don't really know what to change or help you to change yeah. until I know what's really going on. Do some people yeah. come in and want the answer straight away? Because yep. usually the relationship with a yep. psychologist is how long? Depends on, on the nature of, yeah, good question. Yeah. Um, depends on the nature of treatment, that what they're receiving. So if they're receiving cognitive behavioural therapy, it could be a, a, a treatment plan of, you know, 12 to 14 sessions, yeah. one-hour sessions over a course of time if they're coming in fortnightly, monthly, branching it out. If they've got more than one issue, which let's be honest, most people in their life haven't just got one thing going on. There could be some other things. Um, that we say, well, okay, let's just focus on one thing to start with. But it could be longer than that. It could be longer term sort of treatment, like a few few years, which then they start just coming in for maintenance appointments to kind of, you know, they kind of know what they need to do, but they're coming in for sort of a, a checkup to go, okay, Rachel, I've kind of, I haven't gone right back, but I've, I've kind of taken a step back, so I need to kind of check in again. Or something else has happened that's triggered them. Mm. Like, I'm interested in seeing a psychologist, but I feel like I've got well-balanced emotions and I'm in a good place in my life right now. Mm-hmm. But I would just like to talk to someone who mm-hmm. is unbiased and I feel like maybe I've got a little bit of repression from mm-hmm. some stuff when I was younger yeah. that I would like to talk to someone about yeah. who was qualified and could kind of, mm. like, give me, give me like, what their thoughts on it and, mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Do you find yeah. people who yeah. are just... Your average Jerry coming in these days? Absolutely. Or? We, we, we would see, more so Harley, most people as, as the average, as any sort of, any person coming in. And because people are reading things and, you know, as you track through life, different life events occur and then it, it can trigger stuff in us. And you go, where, where was that from? I didn't think I was, you know, still upset about that. And, and then you try to make sense of it. And I guess we, a lot of people we see have already tried different things. They may have got, have a whole bookshelf of self-help you know, they've read everything again, like reading the manual for the driving the car, but they haven't got into drive it yet, if that makes sense. Um, so, so basically, we see more of that, you know, and, and I guess pure empowerment psychology is all about empowering people to be the best version of themselves. So we're very much about, we don't, it doesn't bother us what particular thing, because people say, oh, I know you've got a waiting list, or I know it's hard to get in, but I feel like my issue is small. It doesn't really matter. Don't worry about us you've got something that you're actually being triggered by or you're trying to make sense of it. Yeah. Let's see if we can make sense of it together, you know, because sometimes you don't really know where to start, you know. Um, and that's where, I guess, we've received the training um, in helping people explore where these things might come from. But we can't change where they've come from. We need to change our relationship to the story and our core beliefs about how it then, I guess, influences the world that we live in. Because I think any life event we've occurred, that we've you know incurred over time, 
it can either sit there in like it gets stuck, which means it's kind of hasn't been integrated and we keep having these kind of thoughts about it and it evokes feelings, which is triggering, you know, mm. or somehow it's moved from being, you know, um, stuck to actually getting to being integrated and we give it a sense of meaning. Now, once something has a sense of meaning, it doesn't get stuck anymore. It actually, you know, it's the event's spoken about and then we feel, we actually don't feel so triggered by it. We still remember it but we don't feel so triggered. So, yeah. It, it, was, it was so strange for me the other day, Rachel. I was, um, I knew this thing had happened in my life, and but I'd never spoken about it, and I like, I, but I knew it. I knew it in my head. But one day somebody asked me something that made me answer with this story. And when I spoke it out loud, yeah. I just started crying. Do you know what I mean? Like, but because mm. I'm just, like it sounded so much sadder when I was saying it to somebody. Mm. Like, but when I knew it, internally yeah it was fine yeah but then like once i'd said it to you somebody, gave it words yeah you gave it, words. it was yeah, just gone it. i yeah. feel like yeah i was much it was, it was ha- gone it was, yeah it was help it was helpful to release it yeah 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 it's um and the crying part is completely i know sound cliche it's okay because the, the it, there's people don't often understand this but when we we, we cry it's 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 cathartic we release yeah, yeah. um it's similar to when sometimes people feel unwell, like nauseated by a particular trauma memory sometimes. They go, I feel nauseated. I feel like I want to vomit. But they don't really... They might want to vomit. They may vomit. But it's that's that's a, a natural, you know, way our system is that, you know, it's like when you go and have anaesthetic, you know, it's pain. It's an emotional pain and we get a sickness response from it too. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, yeah. So I guess... I don't know if I've gone off on tangent there, but pretty much... Um, you know, it could be anything you can you can notice that's in, impacting on you and that you can't do it out yourself, you know. We don't have the answers, but what we do is we say, let's bring this into this space and let's see what comes out of this and I'll help you to the best of my ability. There's no guarantee with any treatment. And that we, we never, and if, if someone ever says to you, there's a guaranteed outcome, please run a mile because there's not. Because there's so many dimensions to, as I said, mental well-being, which is outside of our office. We're just that one space for for putting some things into your coping bucket but um you know if we can help you understand yourself and i think that's the first part is understanding what it is about me that you know triggers me what is it about me that's healthy coping because we all cope it's how we cope you know yeah i saw this i've seen it with the pandemic you know how many people would continue to go out to, to buy toilet paper excessively and hoard buying it's coming from a scarcity mindset. You know, scarcity is from anxiety. Yeah. What if there's not enough? What if I don't survive? So how's that mindset of scarcity serving you going forward in your life when there's a next time of uncertainty? You know, you're going to go out and do something, avoidance-style coping again, as a way of trying to manage that feeling. Let's talk about the feeling. Let's talk about how that mindset's helpful for you because yeah. scarcity is not, not helpful. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um. I'm not sure if this is true, but tell me, I'm sure. Mm. A lot of psychologists see psychologists. Yep, very healthy. Yeah. Yeah. Just because you're taking on so many problems and you need to make sure you're in the right yep. spot to handle That's that. That's right, yeah. You do. Look, ethically, um, so a couple of things. So when you're training to be a psychologist, they recommend that you do your own therapy to sort out any things that might be triggering that a client might come into the room with that you need to or that will impact on that experience for that client. Because at the end of the day, it's not our session, it's the client session. So 
So we've got to be very mindful and that we're human being in that space with that client. So we're hearing, we're witnessing lots of traumatic stories, but not always traumatic stories, but you sometimes you just don't know what you'll be triggered by. Um, ethically, we're required to have supervision um, at least you meant to have at least 10 hours, like one hour every, well, 10 hours a year, mm. which is not that much once every, you know, uh, six weeks or so. Um, but that has to, that's locked in terms of your registration every year. So you have to complete so many hours of professional development to keep you upskilled. So you're using current evidence in your work with, with clients, but that you're also checking in on your own sense of health. Um, there's notifications. A psychologist can report another psychologist if they're concerned about their mental well-being. That sounds Man, like a good thing. It's a really good thing. So they're not just being notified based on you know being unethical in their behaviour. The clients can make notifications too, but psychologists can you know notify other psychologists if they're concerned that they're they're functioning or it's impactful on 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 a client. Okay. Now every year when we renew our, our registration. You need to be able to tick, you do a declaration to say, you know, I haven't committed any criminal activity, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm off. If you are, you know, have anxiety or depression as a psychologist, you need to prove that you're actually being, you know, treated for that. Okay. So, um, so all psychologists should see psychologists. That's tricky. Or if it's not a psychologist, at least someone else who's trained in mental health. So it could be an occupational mental uh, therapist who's mental health trained or a social worker who's a mental health, you know, has a background. Um, but basically, some psychologists worry about seeing psychologists if it's a small world. Um, they don't, they shouldn't be worried about that. I mean, I've treated psychologists before too. Mm. I've been to psychologists. I think um, it's, it's still under the client, you know, confidentiality. So you're presenting exactly. to the other psychologist, not with your psychologist hat on, as a person, as a human, who's open to absorbing all sorts of things about vicarious trauma, you know, have have your own life experiences. So yeah, we're not immune to any of that. So, and I think that's the pandemic's been a really interesting space because I think it's been the first time that I've noticed I've been in a shared trauma at the same time as a, as the the client, mm. and they're like, oh. I don't know if you've noticed, Rachel, but these lockdowns are really impacting. It's like, oh, no. <laughs> well, and that's where I, I've found, I've, I've actually had received, like we have C psychologists, but we also have supervision as well. And I all, and they're sort of two different things. So therapy is different to supervision. Supervision mm-hmm. is checking how you're, you're working with clients and these sorts of things. So another psychologist is kind of overseeing your work and it's de-identified and all those sorts of things just to check that there's that everything seems to be going quite well because we all have blind spots you know yeah um but yeah i've noticed I've, I've definitely been using those spaces more so during the whole pandemic because it's like i'm feeling more tired i'm not immune to any of this so yeah i need to cut back my workload a bit i need to go and see people more and it's worked really well yeah would you who would you encourage to get into psychology in terms of what sort of person? Yeah, like what characteristics? Like, if let's say somebody's listening That's right now and they're interested in doing yeah. what you do. Yeah. Like, yeah. what advice would you give them? Yeah, good, good point. I think, you know, the typical personality profile of a psychologist is is quite introverted person, um, who's more of a, who's you know, who's got more of feeling based than thinking based. You know, so who's more emotion based than sort of thinker based, and good on problem solving. I, I definitely encourage, I mean, it's open for many people, you know, it's not, 
you don't have to be people often say oh you've got to be so smart to be a psychologist you have to be so intelligent you need to have you know average you know IQ and common sense I think you need to have your 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 stuff sorted so to speak (laughs) your linen press I call it organized meaning you know the cupboard that whatever your past stuff has been about that you've had that sorted that you know when you you're not you're not doing it for uh, another reason you know you're doing it for um, the betterment for the people that you're you're helping because some psychologists well not just some helping professions can attract people that you know maybe they're trying to answer their own stuff in this and I'm thinking well go and do more therapy then you know don't bring someone in the room around that does that make sense Mm so um but yeah I think it's open to anyone I think if you're a bleeding heart you have to be careful because you'd be a higher chance of vicarious traumatization so you know taking in people's stories yeah one best and it still resonates for me is that one best word a statement of advice my intern psychologist supervisor said to me was he said Rachel you know when you meet with someone you're in two bubbles you're in your bubble they're in your bubble neither should the bubble ever merge you know you're watching their story okay and if you feel that it starts to become more than that you need to be in the room or outside of work you know you need to be able to take that to supervision you know and because you're getting too you're getting overly emotionally involved and absorbed yeah in your job um so yeah I'm, I'm sure this doesn't happen but it's portrayed in movies where people always fall in love with their psychologists yes is, yeah. it, is it, that's like obviously you guys are trained well enough not to do that does that happen in the industry? it happens yeah look i think at the end of the day that you know the ethic code of ethics is there for a reason you know um You've got, but you've got people coming into therapeutic relationships, and it's not, as I said earlier, it's not friend therapy. Mm. People are coming in to a therapeutic relationship, so it's all about the boundary setting. Some people come into a therapeutic relationship with unmet needs. I mean, they might come into a shop with unmet needs, okay? They don't necessarily want to buy something there, they're lonely, they want to chat, okay? Um, So, between the unmet need of the client presenting and and maybe some unmet needs of the therapist, that's where you know that that shouldn't occur unless those unmet needs aren't being watched and supervised okay so you can have clients present and you know I often say as a supervisor to and training particularly females and I don't want to be gender you know because it happened for, for male therapists too but say look as a fe- as a female therapist you know I was trained um what was incredibly helpful was that you know you basically were trained to be, you know, when you meet with a client, it's more of a conservative approach. Be mindful that they could sometimes feel romantically attracted or something like that, you know, because they're feeling alone. You know, they may see you as like a mother figure in their life. They might see you as all sorts of things. So we have this, you know, term like transference and countertransference in the therapeutic relationship. So that is, you know, the client sees particular things about you and then you may see particular things in the client that creates a a chemistry there so um we need to be able to manage that you know um and ethically code of you know code of conduct is 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 not to do any harm so people are coming in emotionally vulnerable Mm. and unless you've got your own linen press sorted you know i that's how those situations and i also think they eventuate because people are not going to get their own supervision they're not being monitored or they're having their supervision and they're afraid to take that to the thera- to the supervision mm. space and say, by the way, I've got this interaction with this client. I'm feeling a bit like it's kind of crossing, not hasn't crossed boundaries, but in the room it feels there's something, you know, how can I work through this? Yeah. Yeah, great. Yeah. 
um, psychologists in Australia are 80% female. Mm. What do you think that is? Yeah, it's, I think in the health professionals as such, it's, it's generally more females and, and it's possibly to do with the more, you know, that um, say all females are more feminine in terms of their personality caring. and um, But yeah, I think that's what, yeah, it, it, it tends to attract. Um, it's unfortunate because, you know, when I run groups, I always like to have a co-facilitator that's male, you know. Um, uh, I think, you know, we can't represent both genders and, and I'd love to recruit you know, some male male psychologists to the practice. It's it's really hard. Most of the people that apply generally, not all, are female. Yeah. Yeah. Or identify as female. So I think it's really um, yeah. I think it's just the nature of health, to be completely honest. But I think that I'm seeing over the over the years that I think that's that's the percentage might be increasing a little bit more in terms of more men. Um, yeah, it's a shame because men offer, you know. I've got a colleague I know of down in Melbourne. He's got a business called Bloke Psychology, and they're all pretty. Yeah, they're all blokes. They're not against employing women, uh, female uh, psychologists, but and that's an incredible space because you know some blokes just want to see blokes for therapy. Yeah, you know. Yeah, um, I understand. That's right, and some blokes want to see females, and vice versa. So, yeah, yeah. But I think it's just to do with you know the natural you know field of health attracts more more females into that profession if somebody was thinking about seeing a psychologist like how would you encourage them to reach out to someone like yourself Mm. i would say uh i always encourage i always say no problems too too big or too small so you know because often find people thinking is this going to fit for a psychologist um just inquire inquire put it just um you can inquire so interesting enough a lot of people email their inquiry through first and you know that's fine because it's a little bit safe so they can go through the contact us on the website and it's picked up on the back end or they directly might email Mm. um or they might yeah generally they'll do that or might message you know through our practice phone we encourage them put an email and then we send them a form just to clarify a little bit more about their situation because that's one thing I should say is not all psychologists treat everything. Okay, now you wouldn't know that. The average yeah. person wouldn't know that. So, for example, I may not treat like smoking addiction. I may, I may not treat um, like forensic related issues or, and you don't know that until you, you know, contact and then qualify. So not, we're not all trained to treat, be a one-stop shop. Mm-hmm. Um, and nor should we be because, you know, um, so... The first thing you want to find out is what is, does the psychologist see and, and is that in their scope, you know? Yeah. Um, they may not see children and you're, or adolescent. You know, they may not see people who have an eating disorder. So whatever it might be is, is find that out first. Um, and that's usually people do surf, the, you know, hang out on, on the website or look at, you know, um, social media and get a bit of a feel. And then I would say... You don't need a referral to see a psychologist, I said that. But if you want to take an advantage of rebates, why not? I mean, if you're eligible for a mental health plan, you get back a significant proportion of the fee. So, you know, sometimes you get half, 50% off the fee. And, you know, if you go to the hairdressers, you don't get a rebate. If you get your nails done, you don't get a rebate. You know what I mean? Yeah. So if you portion it out and go, you're not going to be seeing them every week, it sort of works out fairly, you know, reasonably. Um, but there are services that do bulk bill as well. So you could, you've got to also ask yourself, can I afford this? And if I can't, don't be disheartened because there are funded services, you know, that do bulk bill. Um, and then I would say you book an appointment 
and you see how it fits because finding a therapist is like finding a good pair of jeans they don't always fit yeah all right and you don't know that until you meet the person spend a bit of time the first appointment's always about them information gathering it's like we can't you know fix fix a problem it's not the right word but manage a problem before we get a bit of a history on it so some people are quite impatient they're like oh i just wanted to get a solution at this first appointment it's like well i could offer you something but i'd be guessing okay so i'd rather just take an assessment i'll give you i'll give you definitely something to work on to take away i always give someone something to take away with them because I think that's important that they're wanting something. Um, but see how the session fits. And at the end of the session, you say, how was that for you? You know, And I guess in that space, it's about the person feeling safe. You know, They need to feel somewhat emotionally safe with that person they're meeting with and not triggered by the person they're meeting with. Because if they go, oh, that person was really, I found them annoying or they kept looking at at their watch or something or other yeah. you know yeah um that's completely fine don't that's not the right may not be the right fit for you you don't have to go back to them that's great advice mm. where can people find you like, mm-hmm. do you do you want to mention where your shop is yeah what your sure. um, social media is your yeah. website yep no worries so we're based in Karai street so 187 Karai street is our office location so we are co-located within the real estate agency, which is always interesting. People walk in and say, oh, but it's actually nice because people have a sense of, um, you know, this is anonymous. Like I could be walking in here off the street and, and, and though there shouldn't be a stigma. Yeah, that's great. It's actually works well. Everyone in our building is bound by confidentiality. They all have signed a confidentiality agreement. So it doesn't matter what role they're in and everyone's treated with the same level of respect. Um, so basically 187, yeah, Cry Street, Shepparton. Um, we have the website, which is pureempowerment.com.au. And we also have um, Instagram and Facebook for Pure Empowerment Psychology. The Equine Empowerment, which is the horse um, therapy, is um, is located towards towards Euroa. So yep. it's about a 25-minute drive. But as I said, we do the screening appointments at the office in Shepparton first. And then, again, just try. You go along and have a, have a go at the equine therapy if we think that that would be something that would really be you know very beneficial we see more blokes actually more men out in that space um mm. so then i wouldn't have guessed that yeah 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 uh and we also have had people come to us groups come to us for team building like team building days where they want to work on um some of their you know team related issues or uh, professional developments at a day which has worked really well as well so yeah so that's us Great. I do have two more quick questions for you. Mm. One, um, you're getting a book published? Yes, you saw that? Yeah. Yeah, so, well, I'm hoping it'll, it'll get picked up by an actual publishing house, but it's pretty tricky to do that. I, I mean, I used to work uh, with a well, really well-known psychologist in Melbourne and he's published lots of things and been on This Is Your Life and all those things. Um, and he actually encouraged me to, he said, you should be doing this stuff, Rachel, but... Um, yeah, so I've got a book called um, The Therapist Effect and it's um, what clients uh, you know, really want from the thera- therapy and the therapist but are too scared to ask. So that book is um, something I've got in draft form and I went to a, a, a session or a boot camp, a book writing boot camp with um, Busy Bird Publishers down in Melbourne. So I've just got to be able to carve the time out to actually sit and get it then finished it's nearly finished and then actually send it out to be you know edited and and, and proofed etc 
so that's really um there's that and then I've got a couple of other I've got four other um drafts of things sitting there around one working with horses um around you know in terms of the how the horses you know pick up things as I said before you can fake it with a, a therapist but not with a horse yeah and also about um, for early career psychologists who are thinking about moving to, or just not just early career, but psychologists thinking about moving for metropolitan areas and doing the tree change. Um, I've got a fair bit to share on that being, you know, a metropolitan born and bred person to start and then doing the tree change and, mm. and yeah, how you can make it work in your profession. So, yeah. They sound like important books. Mm. I hope you do. I hope yes. you push for them, are Yeah, I will be. No. I really want to get those out there, so I will need to. Um, I need to actually make that, you know, carve out that time to fu- to finish those. Um, yeah, because I see them as yeah as as helping other people, you know, in yeah yeah in different ways. Yeah. Mm. Awesome. And last question for everybody: uh, Who locally inspires you? Ah, oh, I actually I can't come up with one person to be honest. I would say um well I, I i take a lot of inspiration i mean my husband's been incredibly impactful in my life i mean he's kind of digging to my yang he's got a farming background originally and he's in, inspirational in terms of what he, rod his name is um but on a broader level locally i mean i just i find the community is inspirational there's that many people doing their things in this particular mm. community so many impactful things and when i go out to different events and meet different people I, I'm, I just love people's stories. I'm blown away by what, as you would see in, in what you're doing in this podcast. I mean, um, I would say the community as a whole, really. There's some, and, and their response to even the COVID outbreak here just proved that, that, you know, there's people, you know, the vast majority of people in the community are inspirational in what they do to try and help one another and get through these times. So, yeah. Definitely. Mm. Um, I have to ask, how did you meet Rod? Yes, interesting. Well, that's my <laughs> that's my other my other passion is um, horse racing, as in fashions in the field. So I yeah. used to be quite involved in that when I was in Melbourne, and I still do enjoy it. So I actually met him um, at a local um, or after a local uh, fashions well not fashions but the race um, meeting at Berrigan, which was in New South Wales. At that time, I was living in Yarrawonga, Mawala, on the border. So yeah. when I first moved up from from Melbourne, we used to holiday up this way and I've also got family in, in Maripna actually. But um so yeah, I met I met him um after the after the Berrigan Cup and the rest is history really. So and he loves he loves the races as a ribbon outlet. Um I love the love the fashions and I had um a local hat lady milliner that I teamed up with that would help us out because we'd go down to all the um the the full, you know, the race um Oaks Day and the cup and, and do the fashions down there so obviously that's been squashed since um it's all virtual now yeah um but hopefully that will that will change going forward so surely yeah, yeah. exciting yeah. for those people just listening that's when rachel's face lit up the most yeah <laughs> <laughs> all right thanks yeah. rach great thanks that beautiful excellent sorry i took up 